and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we'll talk about Russia's attack on Ukraine and the threats of a nuclear standoff. And we'll later discuss the nuclear negotiations with Iran and prospects of a final deal. My guest today is Mark Fitzpatrick, a foreign policy and nuclear non-proliferation expert at the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in Washington. He's also a former U.S. diplomat with postings in Vienna, Seoul, and Tokyo, Washington. And he also served as an acting deputy assistant secretary for non-proliferation. Mark, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Negar. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm delighted to have you. Let's start with, obviously, the topic of the day, Russia's attack on Ukraine. And it very much relates to our conversation about um, a potential nuclear standoff. And then later, we want to talk about Iran. But talk about this war. And did you expect it coming? No, I didn't expect it. And I'm tempted to say that nobody expected it. But uh, in fact, U.S. intelligence agencies had been picking up uh, clear indicators that a war was coming. They had uh, been picking these up over the past couple months. Uh, President uh, Biden had been warning about it, and the United States uh, made a very uh, intelligent decision to uh, release its intelligence to inform the world. And yet, you know, we still, I say we, part of the world community that just thought that uh, such an attack on a sovereign state was incomprehensible in an age where we thought such wars were were things of the past. So I didn't expect it. Uh, and it's just, uh, I didn't expect the ferocity of it and the continuation of it. Mm-hmm. And Mark, what do you think are the motives behind this? I mean, we're hearing the Russian side and we're hearing also, as you said, U.S. intelligence and very mixed analysis of how far this may go and what the motives are. What is your view? Yes, well, speaking to motives, first of all, you can discount everything that Russia has said insofar as its motives were defensive, that it had to respond to Ukrainian uh, fascism, that it had to respond to NATO aggression and all that nonsense. You know, it's interesting. Everything that Biden uh, predicted and said about this has come to pass. Everything that Putin said uh, has been a, a lie. So why did uh, uh, Putin, and I say Putin because I think this really was an, uh, his his decision. There's not a lot of evidence that uh, there's a collective decision-making in Moscow. He makes decisions and others carry them out. He browbeats his associates and, and lieutenants and so forth. And uh, he's, uh, he's made clear in many speeches that he regards the loss of Ukraine as having been uh, 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 a terrible stain on Russian uh, history. He talks about the breakup of the Soviet Union having been the uh, greatest calamity of the 20th century, you know, more so than World Wars I and II, which killed millions of people. And he never regarded Ukraine as an independent sovereign state. So uh, you know, an invasion of a of a sovereign state. That's not how he sees it. He's reclaiming Ukraine. So the uh, the motives, I think, were uh, a sense of, uh, of humiliation of, of Russia losing its uh, status as a, a great nation, and uh, a, a, a sense of revanchism of, of reclaiming a territory that had been lost. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of the discussion is also centered around NATO and this potential 
um, for Ukraine of becoming a NATO state and how this would be seen as an existential threat for Russia or a security threat, not existential, but how serious do you think that threat is, first of all, and how much of that do you think plays into the motive? Well, I think it's it's uh, certainly a part of the motive. Um, it and, and that part, uh, you know, Russia states uh, repeatedly, but the way they state it is is false. It's ironic. There's there's no chance that Ukraine uh, was going to be part of NATO or would be part of NATO in the foreseeable future. Most NATO countries don't uh, want it to be. Yes, NATO as an organization issued a, a statement uh, welcoming future uh, Ukrainian NATO participation. They issued that some years ago. I think it was a mistake to have done that, but they have no intention of carrying through on it today. Uh, they don't want to be committed to defending a nation that uh, very well could be uh, and has been invaded by Russia. Uh, but the NATO countries don't want to declare that Ukraine never would be part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, that would give in to Putin's demand. And, uh, you know, Ukraine may well qualify for NATO someday in the future. And uh, it would be, um, I think, irresponsible and immoral to uh, deny it ever to have that possibility. Mm -hmm. And I asked you about the motives, but how far do you think this will go, Russia or Putin, um, you know, there are talks of, or as you also mentioned, reclaiming Ukraine, meaning all of Ukraine. There's also discussions of other neighboring countries. How far do you think this will go? Yeah, you know, um, at the very beginning, you asked me, was I surprised? And I, I was surprised at the invasion. And uh, I'm again surprised that uh, Russia seems intent on going the whole way of taking over the entire country. I thought maybe they would be content with seizing a part of the eastern uh, and southern parts of, uh, of Ukraine. But uh, they seem intent on seizing the capital, on deposing the government, on replacing the government with their own um, quisling, uh type uh, government that will not be acceptable, I think, to the Ukrainian people, and then exercising uh, control to um, to prop up that government and to, um, to punish uh, those who oppose them. So this, this can get uh, much worse and for much longer than any of us would, would could almost dream of. Mm -hmm. And do you, because we're also, I want to ask you about the nuclear threat. We hear talks of uh, nuclear threats and a potential nuclear standoff. First of all, what does a nuclear war look like? Explain to our audience. <laughs> well, um, we don't know what a nuclear war would look like because we've never had a nuclear war in which uh, there were exchanges by both sides. We had nuclear bombs used at the end of, of World War II in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, relatively low-yield nuclear uh, bombs that uh, killed 66,000 in Hiroshima, I think, uh, maybe somewhat less than that in Nagasaki, but left uh, unending um, consequences of the radiation um, sickening people for years. And so the total death tolls were far more than, than the initial deaths. Mm -hmm. uh, it devastated the land. But okay, so answer the question, what does nuclear war look like? Suppose there's a nuclear exchange, uh, two countries that launch, say, 50 
nuclear weapons against each other. Uh, the result would be both devastation in their own country, hundreds, uh, you know, millions perhaps dead, but also a, a dark uh, cloud of dust uh, over the entire globe that would shut out uh, sunlight to the, to the extent that uh, a quarter of a million, a quarter of the world's population may starve because uh, of uh, uh, agriculture not being possible uh, under those, those clouds. So uh, a nuclear war is a, is a tremendously consequential uh, existential threat uh, to individual countries and, and possibly uh, to mankind if it if it escalated you know beyond that fifty uh, weapon exchange that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're explaining almost the end of humanity or something very close to it. Well, you know, there have been so many you know movies that have been made about uh, a few people uh, who uh, live uh, to carry on uh, humanity. <laughs> and and uh, but uh, but you know so civilization, the world as we know it would absolutely stop and uh, and we would have to you know our, our poor descendants would regroup and, and try to carry on um, with much. Uh, lower levels of uh, of of prosperity. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that never happens. But so first, I want to ask you how serious you think these uh, nuclear threats are. We're hearing from the Russian side, and um, you know, obviously there are nuclear powers in Europe. There's also the United States, but then there's also Russia on the other side. Yeah. Well, um, Russia is the only. Uh, one of the nuclear powers making nuclear threats. Uh, I mean, North Korea, you know, often makes them, but but today it's Russia. Mm-hmm. And let's just review. Uh, in the past week alone, on Friday, uh, Putin makes a statement saying, uh, "Whoever tries to hinder us would uh, it would lead to such consequences that you've never encountered in your history." Mm-hmm. That's an obvious uh, uh, nuclear threat. Then uh, two days later, on Sunday, he issues a nuclear alert, putting deterrence forces on high combat alert. Then mm-hmm. on Tuesday, uh, his, he, he holds a nuclear exercise with land-based missiles and, uh, and nuclear uh, subs. So um, within a week, we've, we've had an escalating uh, series of, of threats. And these are all calculated to be signals, of course. Um, you know, I don't think he's going to uh, attack uh, anyone with nuclear weapons. If he did, I don't think he would be um, openly signaling it uh, the way he is. I don't think that Russia is going to launch nuclear weapons. If they were planning to do so, I don't think they would be publicizing it like this. These threats are meant to be signals to warn uh, NATO countries not to interfere in what uh, Putin is doing in the Ukraine. But we can't put it past uh, that he conceivably would use them. I was uh, uh, reading an interview with uh, Fiona Hill, the Russian expert uh, who formerly was on the National Security Council in the the last administration and famously testified uh, against uh, uh, Trump in uh, Senate hearings. Mm -hmm. She she said, would, would Putin use, she didn't say nuclear weapons, but that was the reference. And she said, yes, he would. You know, if push comes to shove, if he doesn't succeed in his plans to take Ukraine, if he gets frustrated, if his, you know, if his if his soldiers keep dying and his his trucks keep getting mired in mud, um, you know, he will resort to shelling and artillery, and conceivably, you know, could try to use a nuclear weapon. Maybe first of all as a signal. Maybe he would first of all uh, explode a nuclear weapon uh, someplace where it wouldn't cause damage. 
I don't know where that would be. It you know, shouldn't be in Ukraine because he regards that as Russian territory. Um, you know, and it shouldn't be in NATO because that would call for a, a, a retaliatory response. But I, I wouldn't, I think there's a significant possibility that he could conduct a nuclear uh, demonstration and and then um I, I hate to hesitate what would go on after that mm -hmm. and you talked about uh reactions what do you think reactions will be from europe and the u.s i mean so far we're seeing a very united european union we're seeing um, harsh economic sanctions imposed both by the u.s and europe how far do you think They will take this, and do you see any chance for a military involvement from either the European side or even the U.S.? You know, the the, uh, the sanctions imposed on Russia to date have been so extraordinarily uh, severe and uh, and unanimous of every European state and and most of the other um, democracies of the world joining in: Japan, South Korea, Australia, even Singapore and Switzerland, and so forth. Um, I don't know how much more they can do on the economic front, but uh, I guess there's more. They can stop um, buying any uh, Russian energy. They could stop buying anything uh, sold by Russia. That that would be a step in the event that uh, Russia escalated uh, uh, more. Will there be a military response? There won't be a Western boots on the ground military response. There won't be a NATO uh, airstrikes uh, against uh, Russia in response to Ukraine they've ruled that out, and for good reasons. Um, Ukraine is not part of the Western security commitment, um, but they they may do other things that have a military nature. Uh, I can see, um, well, they already are. They're selling, um, they're selling weapons and providing weapons uh, to Ukraine, and they'll provide more, you know, anti-aircraft stinger um, missiles and, and, and the like. Um, and I think uh, even after Russia uh, controls the country, um, Western Western nations will supply arms to resistance forces in Ukraine. Uh, they'll provide uh, humanitarian assistance, anything they can. But I don't think they will be attacking uh, uh, militarily, um, which uh, is certainly to lead to further uh, escalation. And they're, they're not going to go down that road. Mm -hmm. And speaking of reactions, I want to, again, go back to the nuclear threats Can you give us a quick view of Russia's, I, I want to hear um, uh, the Russia specifically and also maybe the world's nuclear um, arsenal. We know there's only a few countries, um, but there's a lot of capability. Yeah, there are nine countries that are known uh, to possess uh, nuclear weapons. The five that possessed them before the NPT came into Uh, being, um, and therefore they are regarded as the nuclear weapon states, which don't really, ha I mean, you could say the grandfathered in to have a right to, uh, to have them. Um, Russia and the United States uh, have by far the most, they probably have 90, over 95% of the nuclear weapons. Russia has uh, six and a half uh, thousand, uh, United States has five and a half thousand. You know, uh, China has who knows, maybe 350, according to um, reputable estimates. France, mm -hmm. a little under 300. Uh, UK, um, 225. Pakistan and India, maybe 160, 155 uh, or so. And then 
Israel, um, maybe 90, and then North Korea, maybe 40 to 50. But it's the United, it's the United States and Russia. Now, I said that upwards uh, over, you know, over 6,000 in Russia's case, uh, over 5,000 in U.S. case. Those, those numbers include uh, weapons that are not deployed, some weapons that are waiting to be dismantled. The real weapons of concern are those that are um, offensively, uh, strategically deployed. And those are limited to 1,550 uh, under the New START agreement that was uh, luckily uh, extended at the beginning of the Biden administration last year. So both um, the United States and Russia have um, have less than 2,000 strategic uh, warheads. Now, that's that's more than enough to uh, to make the rubble bounce, uh, mm. as uh, as Kissinger I think once said. Mm, that's where we are. Um, a lot of nuclear weapons in the world. I was going to say, they both have enough to completely destroy each other. And um, let's also talk about Ukraine, because um, you mentioned before to me, and I'm also interested to talk about the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, because there used to also be uh, nuclear weapons in Ukraine, although technically they weren't Ukraine's. But talk about the Budapest Memorandum. Yeah, and yeah. How some basically right now, some countries, and you may include these uh, certain uh, officials in Iran, are looking at Ukraine and thinking or saying that it was foolish to give up the nukes in exchange for, you know, uh, what many see now as a meaningless security um, that is now essentially violated. Yeah, it's... um it's it's not uh, the, the people who say that. Uh, I understand why they say it. They're wrong uh, in the way they characterize it. But mm -hmm. here are the facts. So when the Soviet Union broke up uh, in the early 1990s, um, Soviet strategic weapons were scattered around the former Soviet Union, and a lot of them were in Ukraine. Um, almost 2,000 uh, nuclear warheads. The, some were mounted on ICBMs. There were 176 IBMs. Um, there were uh, um, cruise missiles uh, that had nuclear weapons. They had a lot of uh, weapons. Now, as you said, they never were Ukraines. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine had no ability to fire these weapons. They, the weapons were on their soil, but they didn't have any, any um, means of, uh, of the, having the launch codes of being able to, uh, to actually use these nuclear weapons. So luckily, all these uh, nuclear weapons were uh, returned uh, to Russia mm -hmm. and uh, in Russia proper. And in exchange for that, um, the United States, United Kingdom and Russia uh, signed a document, the Budapest Memorandum, it's called, which gave negative security assurances to Ukraine. Negative security assurances are that we won't attack you. That's different than a positive security assurances assurance, which is that we will come to your aid if you're attacked. Mm -hmm. They never promised to do the latter. They promised not to um, subject uh, these sovereign uh, states to threats, to use of force uh, or economic pressure. Uh, uh, promises that Russia has violated uh, uh, repeatedly and massively. And if there was, uh, if they were subject to uh, acts of aggression, then the parties, the, the, the major powers would uh, uh, consult and uh, call uh, uh, for Security Council action. So they didn't really promise very much. 
because you know, call for Security Council action, but if the aggressor is one of the Security Council members that holds a veto, Security Council can't do anything, as is the case today. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Ukraine, many Ukrainians think they signed a worthless piece of paper. And yes, in, in retrospect, it was worthless because uh, it didn't stop uh, Russia at all. But uh, I think we're lucky that there were no nuclear weapons left over in Ukraine because uh, in the event of of a, an, an attack like this, um, some of those nuclear weapons uh, could get lost, could get in the hands of non-state actors. Uh, some of them, even though Ukraine didn't have a capability to launch them, uh, they could be used and uh, a nuclear war uh, could could erupt. But let me just say one more thing about the, uh, the, the Budapest Memorandum and this feeling that it was foolish of Ukraine to give them up. That's, that's something that some states themselves say North Korea is one of those states mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's one of the um, justifications North Korea uh, puts forward for for never giving up its uh, nuclear uh, protection um, and we also uh, heard reports of attacks on a nuclear power plant in Ukraine how do you see this basically tying into uh, this argument that you uh, you're making in case of the presence of actual nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Right. I think it's important to mention this attack just today, uh, shelling that set off a fire at um, Ukraine's um, one of its uh, nuclear power plants, the largest nuclear power plant uh, in in Europe. And uh, you know, was it was it uh, an attack directed at that nuclear power plant? It almost doesn't matter whether it was directed or it was inadvertent. Um, for Russia to be conducting artillery shelling near a nuclear power plant is is so irresponsible. Now, it, it, if the nuclear power plant had been hit uh, directly, and uh, uh, this the result would not be the same as a nuclear uh, weapon. You know, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, radioactive um, uh, spread or or nuclear um, force. Um, but there certainly would be a nuclear um, a nuclear disaster, uh, akin maybe to not maybe akin to the Chernobyl one. But but here's here's what happens. So this nuclear these nuclear power the nuclear power plant under fire it was it was taken uh, off the grid. It, the power was shut down. And the power was also shut down at the associated uh, power plants. But they still have to keep um, cooling. Uh, the power plants. So they need outside electricity uh, to provide the power to cool the power plants. And, you know, they're still pretty high. It takes a, a few days to get them cooled down. They rely on the electrical grid. But if there's a war going on, if other parts of the electrical grid are being shelled and, and it gets cut off, then you have a very dire situation of a power plant that can't cool and uh, it won't be as hot as the Chernobyl one was, but it, it could still melt down and, and be another disaster, something else that we would attribute to Putin and his war crimes. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, I wasn't planning on asking you about Chernobyl, but now that you mentioned it a couple of times, in fact, Chernobyl was also um, a nuclear power plant in in Ukraine, and there was a disaster um, that happened there in the 80s, Tell our audience um, briefly about the Chernobyl disaster as well. Well, that that disaster um, was the uh, result both of uh, of a poor design and of uh, and of uh, poor uh, decision making on the part of the Soviet um, uh, decision makers. They 
they purposely uh, shut down safety measures as a test. And uh, the poor uh, operators inside, um, you know, some of them were not so well-trained. Some of them were pretty young. And, uh, you know, many of us have seen um, the, the TV series uh, Chernobyl. It's, mm-hmm. it's a remarkably um, well, well done and accurate uh, representation of what happened and how um, mm-hmm. once the meltdown uh, started, there was nothing the operators could do. I mean, you know, some of them gave their lives to try to uh, cool it down and, and, and did something of that. But, uh, you know, they ended up uh, helicopter after helicopter pouring sand on the top, trying to, trying to stop this uh, fire uh, from consuming more. You know, luckily, the number of deaths directly at the time was relatively low. You know, people thought, well, maybe there'd be thousands. No, it was, uh, it, you know, it was less than, well, I can't remember exactly, but it might have been, you know, it was double digits. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it had an impact of spreading radiation that, that made the surrounding uh, land um, unusable for decades. Uh, and, and, and surely many of the nearby residents uh, carry uh, radiation um, damaged uh, genes and radiation sickness uh, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually watched the Chernobyl miniseries. I very much enjoyed it. I'm glad you think it was a fair depiction. I encourage uh, those who are interested to definitely watch it. It's produced by HBO and it's a short, like a miniseries. So it's only five parts. Um, but let me, let's now talk about Iran because I think all of this can somehow, um, relate or tie back into what's going on in Vienna, where you were once posted as a U.S. diplomat, um, the nuclear negotiations. It's now almost a year of these very intense talks to sort of revive the JCPOA, bring the U.S. back into the deal, bring the Iranians back to full compliance. And we're now hearing um, talks of the final stages of the deal. What is the latest, first of all, that you're hearing on the state of talks from Vienna. Yeah, you know, uh, just uh, I, I wish that the talks had been intense for the past year. There was this, <laughs> uh, you know, six month hiatus when nothing happened. And then at the That's beginning true. too, there was a hiatus uh, when they didn't get started really until April. But uh, yeah, they've gone on certainly long enough. And uh, and the United States and France and UK said enough is enough. Uh, bring it to a close, or or that's it. Um, you're not serious. Well, I think Iran is serious about um, reaching a, a deal because they want the sanctions lifted. But they're also determined uh, to keep up pressure and to get a better deal than the previous government uh, seemed like it was going to be getting. But I don't think in the end it'll be too much different. I I have I had been pessimistic. Um, throughout the latter half of the last year and through January. But just in the last uh, few days, I think there's reason to believe that a deal will be struck. Um, even though uh, Iran came up with uh, one more demand uh, that it hadn't uh, uh, said was a red line before, this new demand being that the IAEA has to stop its investigation of the um, sites where um, uranium um, particles had been found in places um, where Iran had previously never reported nuclear activity, which is indicative of a safeguards violation. And uh, the IAEA has to pursue safeguards violations. They can't just stop the the, um, the pursuit um, 
in response to an Iranian political demand. But what they can do is uh, find a way to perhaps close some of the files and uh, uh, find a path forward for continuing to investigate uh, other parts of it. And that's essentially what they did in 2015. I think it, when the JCPOA was, uh, was uh, you know, first uh, agreed to, and it, in retrospect, I think it, it was probably the biggest demerit of the 2015 deal that the IAEA at that point essentially swept uh, questions about Iran's nuclear weapons past uh, work. They swept that under the rug. Mm-hmm. They said Iran had to answer questions, but they didn't say the, que- the answers had to be adequate. Well, they weren't adequate, but they said, okay, you answered. So, okay, we'll, we'll say that the future, you know, stopping proliferation in the future is more important than understanding absolutely everything that happened in the past. And Iran would like the IEA to similarly sweep it under the rug today. And I, I think, I just don't think they should do that entirely. But uh, IEA Director General Grossi is in Vienna as we speak. We're speaking on, uh, on Thursday evening. Uh, and maybe by the time this podcast is aired, there will be news that Grossi has pulled a rabbit out of his hat and addressed that uh, issue with Iran. And that leaves a couple, two other issues. One is the extent of, uh, of U.S. You know, sanctions lift. And I think, you know, I think in the end, the United States will lift all the sanctions that would impede um, implementation of the JCPOA. That's something the United States has repeatedly pledged. And the issues have been, well, uh, does sanctioning the Iran, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, does that impede um, implementation? And I think it does. Uh, I think you have to lift the sanctions on the IRGC because they have such a massive stake in the Iranian economy. Their tentacles are everywhere. And if you, if you, you know, blacklist them, you're, you're stopping a lot of economic um, uh, activity. Uh, you know, so I, I think that, um, I think the issues probably are going to be resolved. They're going to be ugly. We're going to, people are going to be crying murder on the Republican side of the, of the U.S. body politic. They're already crying murder. I mean, some of the arguments against the JCP they're, they're raising if we just relate one thing to the, the the nuclear issues, you know, Iran hawks are saying uh, the United States is going to be signing a deal made by Putin as though as though <laughs> Russia was negotiating this deal. Well, Russia has been one of the parties um, negotiating the deal. They've been an, uh, an active and a, and a uh, responsible and, and generally productive uh, party, but they're not writing the deal any more than any France's or UK. Um, the United States has been the major player, and they'll be the major one um, making the compromises uh, that uh, will go into a deal. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Russia's role is a little bit more highlighted here for two reasons. One is that Iran and the U.S. are not meeting directly. So their European diplomats, especially the EU, has a very key role here, as it had before, in facilitating these indirect talks, basically shuffling back and forth. And also the Russian diplomats, um, because the current Iranian administration sees them as more of a trustworthy partner. And then also the second point, I think, uh, more of a public diplomacy point, is that the Russian diplomat in Vienna, Ulyanov, has been very active, especially on social media and Twitter, posting photos and updates of the talks. And it just seems like he's become a public narrator. Um, and just some people see that, literally just look at it and assume that he's running the show, but really there's a lot of diplomats and groups in the background that don't necessarily tweet 
photos and updates, but they have very key roles. And as you mentioned, I'm, I'm glad you also mentioned the IAEA, the UN Nuclear Watchdog, the director, Rafael Grossi, is um, due to visit Tehran this weekend on Saturday. As you said, today is Thursday. We're posting this podcast tomorrow, hopefully, and he will be visiting on Saturday. And that's also seen as a potential boost um, to a final deal. Um, so you talked about some of the opposition of the Iran hawks to the deal. Talk about the fight ahead, because you know we know there was a big fight when former President Obama made this agreement, although it the fight back then didn't succeed in stopping it. But uh, we know the Biden administration also expects a big fight, not just in the public space and uh, media, but also at the U.S. Congress. How do you think this fight is going to look like? And then let me add one more, more point. Interestingly, we just heard from uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck, Chuck Schumer, who was uh, in opposition last time around under President Obama, but this time he seems to be supportive of the talks and vocal of his support. So what does the fight um, ahead look like for the Biden administration? Right. Well, he's going to uh, uh, have um, uh, tremendous uh, criticism directed at him from every single Republican lawmaker uh, and uh, conservative pundit uh, in the country. Uh, they will they will claim that the deal uh, was worthless uh, to begin with and that the timelines in the deal make uh, resumption of it uh, even um, uh, less worthy. You know, they're absolutely wrong about the first claim. It was a, a very worthwhile deal. It uh, it set back Iran's uh, capability uh, to ever uh, produce a nuclear weapon. Uh, you know, taking out uh, 98% of the uh, enriched uranium, uh, making sure that Iran couldn't produce a nuclear weapon before uh, 12 months, and, uh, in very, and, and then increasing the uh, inspection authority of the IAEA. Uh, all of that was uh, tremendously important, and it, it should have bought time. Uh, unfortunately, the time was wasted because of uh, other disputes, and then the former uh, U.S. president uh, pulling out of the deal you know, the, the worst po foreign policy uh, mistake he made among many, pulling out of this deal that had been working, that Iran had been honoring, and uh, and that held the potential uh, to be expanded upon. And now we have to start over in a, in a deep hole. Uh, and it will probably be impossible to put the deal back uh, entirely the way it was. By that, I mean, because of the nuclear advances Iran has made during this period of time when Trump pulled out of the deal. Uh, the, the timeline of uh, one year before Iran could possibly produce enough highly enriched uranium for nuclear weapon, that will be hard to, uh, to get that timeline uh, back to 12 months, and given that it's only a couple uh, weeks uh, today. Mm -hmm. United the States breakout has, time, the quote-unquote breakout, unquote, breakout time, yeah, time. They're going to have to settle for a shorter timeline. And uh, um, you know, the hawks will, will uh, howl about that, but it's their own fault for egging Trump on to pull out of the deal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one, um, you, know, you know, problem with, uh, with the resumption of the deal is the, um, is the breakout time. The other is the short timelines ahead of us before um, limits come off and other um, aspects of the deal you know, the uh, restrictions on um, Iran's ability to import uh, missile 
parts and so forth comes off next year. And uh, all of that leaves a very short period of time uh, to make real progress. Um, the Biden administration would love to um, extend the deal by entering into new negotiations. Uh, I hope they can, but uh, I'm not very optimistic. Um, anyway, the, the last point answer to your question, you know, what will, what will happen in Congress? Um, Republican, the Republican Party will, uh, will say that um, the uh, requirements of the INARA Act, the, uh, was it the Iran Nuclear Agreement uh, Review Act, uh, that was um, uh, done in uh, 2015 concurrent with the JCPOA, that, that those conditions of the act would uh, would kick in and there would have to be a new vote in Congress. I don't think so because you know, what's going to be agreed to is going to be an extension of the JCPOA, so it's not a new deal. But there are requirements in that act that, uh, that require the president to uh, um, say, uh, to give a... Um, a statement saying that Iran is honoring uh, its commitments. And this is why Iran's idea that the United States had to make upfront concessions and, and lift all sanctions and then Iran at some future point would uh, would come back into the deal, that can't fly because of Inara. Uh, the president has to certify that Iran is meeting its commitments. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, um, uh, you know, the president uh, will be in violation of that law. Um, so there, it'll be messy in Congress. I think and partly because of what you just said, the fact that um, Senator Schumer has voiced some positive words about it, I think that the president will get through the uh, the congressional fight um, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned in Rana, basically the president certifying or verifying this actually happened. Let me make this note that this happened under President Trump a few times because he didn't pull out of the deal until mid-2018, so he was basically certifying that Iran was abiding by the JCPOA, and nevertheless, he uh, withdrew from the deal. Um, let me ask you one more question about breakout, because there are also arguments and analysis that this is more of an academic issue, this breakout time, or the time needed to enrich enough uranium as fuel for one nuclear bomb. Um, and now this breakout time essentially in the New Deal is going to be shorter. How uh, how worried are you about this shorter breakout time in the in the New Deal? Yeah, well, I am worried about it. And uh, I understand uh, the argument that uh, the breakout time uh, is, a, is an academic uh, issue. Um, because if Iran really were to go for broke, and uh, produce uh, weapons-grade uranium and build a bomb, they wouldn't be doing it in a plant where the that is inspected, where it would be detected uh, right away. They'd be doing it in some secret place. So it's a kind of a false metric in that regard. But it's the only metric we have in order to um, calibrate Iran's uh, nuclear advances and how close they are to a nuclear weapon, because even though it's theoretical, uh, Iran has demonstrated uh, a very good capability to enrich uh, uranium to now 60%. I used to think that they would uh, have trouble doing something like that, that they hadn't done before, but they've got um, manuals um, from the black market and they've uh, had a practice now. And so getting up to 90%, I, I think they could do 
very quickly and they have such a stockpile of low enriched uranium. So maybe theoretical in some sense, but it, it's, uh, it's the only measure we have and it's one that I think should worry everyone. And let me just link this discussion to the first part of the discussion we had today. You know, I said I was surprised that uh, Putin attacked Ukraine and that I was surprised that that attack has gone on to be a full-fledged full -fledged attack on the entire country. We shouldn't um, ignore the possibility that uh, a, a state would um, take extreme steps uh, that it feels, for whatever reasons, in Putin's uh, case, totally unreasonable reasons. In Iran's case, maybe they would feel they were under uh, a threat and needed to get a nuclear deterrent. And, and some Iranians argue for it and more argue today than used to. And Iran has a history of nuclear weapons development. Let's not forget that. They're not an innocent country when it comes to the nuclear issue. We do need um, to extend that breakout time. And we need to keep the IAEA inspections going that give us uh, confidence that a breakout will be detected. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we talk about the broader region or the Middle East, how serious do you think... Um, the threat, there's all this talk of a potential nuclear arms race in the Middle East. You talked about extreme situations. Let's talk about the region also. Do you really see a threat of a race towards nuclear arms in the region? Oh, absolutely. Um, maybe not a race, but a, certainly a, a, a tit-for-tat competition. Saudi Arabia has made it very clear that if Iran gets nuclear weapons, uh, so will the Saudis. And they've already taken steps uh, en route to that. You know, they've, um, they've acquired uh, delivery systems from China, and now they are, um, uh, they, they, they've received some kind of assistance in a plant that can produce their, their own missiles. Their nuclear capabilities are still uh, rather low level, they don't have any enrichment. They don't have any reprocessing. They don't have any nuclear power plants that can produce uh, plutonium. So they, they would have to go a long way uh, to be able to get to the stage where they could produce nuclear weapons. And it certainly would be discovered and the world would, would come down on them, I hope, I trust. Uh, then, you know, some people say, well, they would just be able to, uh, to buy nuclear weapons from Pakistan or from the black market. I don't think Pakistan is going to sell nuclear weapons to Saudi Arabia. They got into big trouble when um, uh, their uh, nuclear engineer, Abdul Qadir Khan, uh, sold nuclear weapons technology to several states. Pakistan doesn't want to go through that again. But the black market is, is potentially there and Saudis might find a way. Then there's Turkey where uh, President uh, Erdogan has openly uh, mused about um, getting uh, nuclear weapons. Turkey doesn't face any threat from Iran or vice versa, but Turkey is a middle power in the Middle East and they see themselves as, uh, as a, in a power equivalence to Iran. And if Iran suddenly becomes much more powerful uh, by having nuclear weapons, there will be those in Turkey that also want to have that power. There will be some in Egypt that want it. Egypt is much further uh, further back in terms of the technology, but they have they have nuclear engineers, and it's not inconceivable that they could go down that route as well. And of course, Israel already has them. We can't. We mustn't uh, ignore uh, that one nuclear armed state in the Middle East. Right, and moving beyond the Middle East, there is also a global 
non-proliferation and disarmament movement, disarming the current nuclear weapons. It's growing. It has strong support from civil society around the world in various countries. Do you ever see a complete disarmament of these nuclear weapons in the world? The non-proliferation has worked very well. The number of nuclear armed nations has remained at single digits. Um, and there's no other country besides Iran that seems poised to, uh, to break it into double digits. But, um, but there's been far less progress on disarmament in the past uh, uh, 10, 20 years. There was great progress during the, the last part of the cold year in bringing down arsenals that used to be 60,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, now there are mm, you know, 15,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, I'm sorry, there used to be 90,000, now they're about 15 or less. So, but, but that 15,000, no. It's it's a twelve thousand. It's twelve thousand. That figure hasn't changed very much over the past few years. I used to think that there would be some nations that are nuclear arms possessors that might give them up. I thought United Kingdom might be one of them. I lived in the United Kingdom for ten years, and there's a very strong uh, civil society view that nuclear weapons are not necessary, and that the United Kingdom could give them up. But actually, the UK has moved in the opposite direction. They've uh, most uh, recently uh, increased the level of, of uh, nuclear arms that they say they will have. So there are no signs that the world is moving toward uh, um, a nuclear-free uh, status, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I, think, I think they should, uh, because even though nuclear weapons have helped keep uh, this, the, the major powers from going to war against each other for the past 70 years, We've been very, very lucky that there haven't been missteps, accidents, misperceptions, uh, miscalculations uh, that easily could have uh, resulted in a nuclear exchange. And I don't know how much longer our luck can hold out. We shouldn't rely on luck. We should get rid of these nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully that won't happen. And I agree with you. Uh, hopefully the disarmament will eventually uh, take shape. Okay, Mark, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. You're welcome, Negar. Thanks again for having me. That was Mark Fitzpatrick, a foreign policy and nuclear nonproliferation expert at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and a former acting deputy assistant secretary for nonproliferation. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.